Blog Talk Radio. I have an emergency. What is your location? Welcome to Rescue Radio. Yes, indeed. Do we not know there is a war going on out there? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord God. You are the one who controls the outcome. You love us. You've already won this battle. We thank you, Lord, that you've got it, whatever it is that pertains to us this day, that we refuse to push the panic button and get scared and feel anxious and freak out, Lord. We're walking in your peace, which is a declaration of our confidence in your faithfulness, Lord God. And so I thank you, Jesus, that this is a big story. This is huge, bigger than we can even imagine, bigger than even your Bible lets us understand it to be. What a fight, Lord God, over the word, over our lives, over our souls, over our destinies, Lord God. But we thank you that you've anchored our salvation and the destiny to which you have uh, determined us, Lord God, called us to through the blood of Jesus Christ, through your salvation, through your sanctification, through your cross, that you've given us power. You've not left left us without weapons. You've not left us without armor. You've not left us without the promise of your return. Lord God, teach us to use our weapons to bind, to loose, and to forgive, Lord God, and to rest in the fullness of your finished work. We thank you too, Lord God, for the daily promises that no weapon formed against us will prosper that no word said, no deed done, no action taken will be able to be used by the enemy to bring forth any shame, trouble, or reproach. So I pray that you would give us grace to come before your throne of grace and mercy to present our case, standing on these promises, that you prevail against our enemy, no matter how complicated or entangled or enmeshed the situation that we look at is, Father. And I pray today that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand because we need to understand because if we don't understand the devil, the snatcher will come and snatch these things out of our minds. So open us up to understanding, and I bind every spirit of confusion, um, deaf and dumb spirits, dizziness, busyness, distraction, all the things that the enemy would try to use to disturb or deter us from paying attention. Lord God, in Jesus' name, bless us, and you are the faithful witness. Amen. All right, so last time we were talking about... Um, uh, what were we talking about? Let me see if I can remember. Um, yes, are we caught up? Are, yeah, are we and our loved ones caught up in a war uh, that has to do with demonic reciprocity, the devil's definitions of justice? What's going on in your life and what are you going to do about it? So we're going to kind of continue that discussion today. And I'm taking some of my information for those of you who might be interested in getting the full copy there's a conference I did called Uncovering the Lies. I think it's available on our website, liferecovery.com. And uh, you can get out, get the real the real version. This is kind of like the, um, uh, I don't know, the summary version or whatever. But and if, by the way, if you want to call in today, feel free to do that. Our number is 347-215-8051. I'm sure both, most of you are going to be listening to this on the archives. And we thank you for doing that. And for those of you who are faithful and loyal to listen in the morning when we're up and running, uh, give us a call at 347-215-8051. Not that we have all the answers, but we do consider a lot of the questions. All right, 
marked by sin, claimed by hell, how the curses of the generations are dealt with after we're saved. Well, what happened? What happened? There was a sin committed, one sin. That was the sin, of course, uh, that alienated us from God and set this whole thing under the counsel of the God of this world, all things that God had created, the authority he'd given Adam and Eve, um, the, the land that they were to uh, have jurisdiction over, uh, the animals, their offspring, everything was transferred in one fell swoop to the uh, control of the evil one. And that sin remained in place, that uh, situation, and still does to this very day, until such time as the Lord God will come a second time and finish the work he began at Calvary. But the first coming of Jesus Christ was to take care of that sin. You notice um, God had to respond to the sin. He, he was, there was something that had to be done. And so uh, when we're talking about getting rid of our sin, which is kind of the situation that opens the door for the curse, the, the opens the door for guilt, condemnation, the sin. Sin means you're listening to a lie. You're being persuaded. You bite the hook. You do what Eve did. You get deceived. You don't know you're deceived at the time. You're maybe not willingly deceived, but you are truly controlled. Some people are beyond deceived. They're deceived and controlled. And maybe they're not even deceived anymore, but they're simply controlled. They cannot stop doing what they hate, and it's taking them out. And we are talking in terms of addictions, life-controlling habits, that sort of thing that are very deadly and detrimental. So they move beyond deception into being absolutely taken over, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, in doing the things you don't want to do. So there are a lot of situations to consider before you judge someone or yourself in a sin. It's a matter of mercy. And as we look at David in Psalm 51, where he sinned, we're going to kind of bring this down to being personal. Um, He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, Psalm 51, verse 1. This is right after he sinned the major sin of adultery with Bathsheba. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Now, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Sin, the blotting out of a sin or an iniquity or a generational bloodline of evil or a pattern of demonic um, destruction, curses, Blotting out the iniquity and the sin that feeds those curses requires two things. It requires God's mercy and satisfying the law of reciprocity. You say, oh, what is that? Never heard of that. Is that in the Bible? (laughs) Blot out my transgressions. Okay, so God could have just said to, to David, oh, that's okay. No problem. You're forgiven. No big deal. But if he would have said that, he would have had the devil howling, down his back saying, that's not fair, that's not fair. You can't just do that. You can't just do it. There was a sin committed here. Something has to be done. So in satisfying or blotting out in, in, an individual sin or a sin that is committed by a group of people or the original sin, all of them required, number one, God's mercy. So God, in his mercy, sent Jesus Christ, his son, to do what? To scold us? to set up the ten points of how to get to heaven and behave, to give us the Ten Commandments. Jesus never gave us the Ten Commandments. No. He 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 came down here to do really one major thing, and that was to die on the cross, shed his holy, innocent, divine blood 
in human form to satisfy the demands of the law of reciprocity. The law of reciprocity says an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. It's got to be paid. It required that his blood be given in exchange for the sins that were committed. So God had two things going on here, the mercy, and he had to do something. He couldn't just say, oh, it's okay, no big deal, honey, you're off the hook. He had to say, it's okay, honey, no big deal, you're off the hook, because I'll take the the punishment, the consequences, I'll satisfy the demands of justice for you. So God, in his mercy, had to satisfy his justice. Because God is the God of justice and mercy. So this is a, I, I know most of us, we, we kind of err or lean towards mercy or judgment, or but usually not the nice combination as God is here showing us mercy and justice. So God had to satisfy his mercy and his justice, and he did it through the, the death of Jesus Christ. So technically, all sins were one sin. All of our sins committed come under the heading of one sin. And that was the loss of the kingdom, the believing of the lie, the sin that Adam committed. Therefore, it is it is fair that the punishment or the payment for of one man could satisfy the debt of all sins, because he was a sinless man and he didn't sin. Therefore, he, one payment was sufficient for all sins. However, you know, however is the big however, Be, because. David in Psalm 51, verse 14, he's, well, let's go, we'll work it down. Go to verse 5 for a second. And he says, verse four, verse 3, I, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He's being eaten up with guilt. He can't forget it. He can't sleep. He can't eat. He, he's being tormented, if you will, with guilt and condemnation because his sin is he's ever before him. Who's bringing it ever before him? Who's never letting him rest or have peace about this thing, who's never letting go of this thing, who's constantly eating away at his heart and soul. And have you been there? Are you there now where your sin is ever before you? Well, your life is now, if you stop and think about it, it's all about your sin. It's all about how bad I am. I wish I wouldn't have done that. How am I ever going to get forgiven? How am I ever going to outlive this? I can't live with myself. I hate myself for doing this, blah, blah, blah. All right. And then he, he admits, David admits, I've done this evil in your sight. And he said, and you're blameless, God. When you judge me for this, you're blameless. I did it. Then he he goes into verse 5. He says, but behold, remember God. Remember this. You remember this, people. We were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin our mothers conceived us. It wasn't that conception is a sinful act. It was actually an act of, of obedience and being fruitful and multiply. But the what is what he's saying here is that even when you're, in that moment of innocence and conception brought forth by the will of God in his truth, there is sin in the mix, brought forth in iniquity. That iniquity is still the mark of blood guilt and unfinished business, unconfessed sins, bitterness, uh, open doors, things that have come down the generational bloodlines that are that are there ready uh, to influence you create your perceptions, teach you things. It's like, that's like the snake pit, the particular personal spiritual legacy, which includes positive and negative, the gene pool, the legacy, the snake pit that you are born into. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, then he goes on, David says, but you, O God, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. So what does this imply? That in the inward part, 
part of my heart where God desires truth, there may not be truth. He wants truth there. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom, which implies it's not there to begin with. But through the course of life and being going through being, all the, the, the crucible, trials, testings, persecutions, um, opportunities that we go through in our life, God wants to create in us the image of Jesus Christ. He wants to bring truth and wisdom to the inner parts of our being and to satisfy um, and, and forgive and grow us up, if you will. He says, he goes on to say, purge me with hyssop, I will be clean, cleanse me, I'll be whiter than snow, make me to hear joy and gladness. So he'd lost his joy, his gladness, and that's what sin does. It really takes away the joy, the freedom, the peace, the inner peace, um, and he, he he's tr- struggling. He's blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Not a wishy-washy, back and forth, doubt, double-minded um, confusion, but confidence and consistency in walking and standing, walking in the spirit, living in the spirit. Do not cast me away from your presence. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. He says, Then I will teach transgressors and sinners the way. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Blood guiltiness, what is that? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, from sin. You know, we were talking last week about Cain, and he was the, uh, obviously Adam sinned, but there wasn't bloodshed at Adam's and Eve's um, transgression, in that transgression. But when Cain shed blood, we have now the first um, well, of course, God killed the animal to cover, give skins to cover Adam and Eve. But the first human shedding of blood came when Cain killed his brother. And if you think about it, the blood went into the ground. The ground, the earth, the place, the very place where where Cain got his livelihood, his living, you know, growing the fruits and vegetables, was now marked with the innocent blood, the iniquity that uh, of, of Cain's sin, if you will, was marked in the blood, uh, in the land, in the earth. And and God put a mark on Cain as well. He marked him in his forehead to protect him because Cain said, now everybody's going to try to kill me. And God says, nobody's going to kill you. If they kill you um, seven times, worse things are going to happen to them. But Satan, I believe, put that mark on Cain's soul for his destruction and because Satan didn't want to forget about this, he didn't want to lose track. He wanted to keep uh, a record, if you will, of this blood guilt because he was going to come back again and use it over and over and over uh, against Cain, against anyone else who fell into that category because of the law of reciprocity. Now, what is this demonic justice, if you will, the law of reciprocity? The, it, we all know this. The law of reciprocity is actually written inside of us. It is not something you really have to be taught, although you may need to have someone give you the words to articulate it. But you already know when something's fair and not fair by the time you're about three years old. You know, the law of reciprocity basically says something done or given in return for something else. You know, you um, give me 10 cents, I will give you a cookie. You know, we, we exchange things. So getting even or getting back at someone in response to and at the same level of intensity or in similar or similar in nature or kind is the devil's definition of justice. I'll say that again, getting even or getting back at someone in response to and at the same level of intensity or 
similar in nature or kind, is the devil's definition of justice. So the law of demonic reciprocity demands that a life must be given for a life taken. That's why Jesus Christ had to give his life, um, because the, and he had to give his blood, actually, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the devil demanded Cain's death, but God stepped in and put the curse, if you will, on the ground instead. God, Satan was going to say, Cain needs to die. He killed Abel. He needs to die in his place. Simple. Simple justice, right? And God said, no, we're not going to do it that way, but I will put this curse on the ground, the source that sustained Cain's physical life, livelihood. And in, in doing that, he actually spared Cain's life. So, so, but what did this do to Cain? I mean, Cain still didn't get off the hook necessarily because the curse of reciprocity uh, in that Satan demanded, he took from Cain his his anointing, um, his horticultural gardening anointing, the source of his blessing, the place of his livelihood, the sense of identity, his sense of worth and acceptance. He was, you know, a lot of people get their sense of worth and acceptance by what they do, their work, and when they can't work anymore, then they're not worth anything, and they they realize that they've built all of their sense of worth and worthiness on their ability to and their identity on what they do. And of course, that's the bottom line in the pit. Satan wants you to get you get you to believe you're a doing and not a being. God says we are a being, being that does things. Satan says, no, you're a doing that proves that you can be. Okay. He puts everything on doing, and of course we mess up, and of course the devil messes it up, really. And then he makes us feel bad and guilty and responsible. And in that case, he just kind of smashes our identity, our worth, and our focus, because we're all looking at ourselves and what we do, what we got, how we look, what people are thinking about us, and we miss the whole, whole point of serving God. This whole world down here is nothing of what it appears to be. So Cain lost his meaningful activity, his occupation, his livelihood, his ability to contribute to the family. Um, he lost, lost his purpose, his peace, his satisfaction. You know, when you do work and you like the work you do, there's a sense of satisfaction. Well, he didn't get that anymore. Um so the curse became a place of unending loss and pain, and that's what exactly the curse does to you and I. It becomes a place that steals our joy, um, uh, it steals our blessings, and it becomes a place of unending pain. And it comes under the counsel and in response to um, and not recognizing that it is the demon spirit of guilt that comes to steal from you and make you pay again the debt that God already paid for you. So... In all of this, we see that Cain's life was brought, his life and his family, under a new pattern, a pattern of demonic judgment, demonic, um, uh, well, yeah, the pattern of demonic judgment or the curse. No more blessing. So now Cain's place of his greatest gift to make things grow became the place of his greatest pain and curse. And this is true for a lot of us. If we would understand seriously that God has created our families, our grouping, our grouping of people that we call our family, our brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, grandfathers. That there was a divine purpose for that grouping of people to be bought, brought into that specific group grouping to do something for the kingdom of God. To you know, uh, for example, I'll just use myself. Um, my last name, my original last name, my maiden name, means to make right, to make right, to judge become an arbitrator to make right. And 
if you if you look at where you're gifting, and some of you have a last name, you need to look up what it means because that will give you a little clue as to what it is. At least your your maiden name for those of you who are married and women. But so anyway, this this is exactly where the curse takes place. This is exactly where the the target. You know, your gift to make things right, your gift to uh, evangelize, your gift to make money, um, your gift to uh, take care of the poor, your gift to uh, invent things. Wherever your gift is in your family was called. And by the way, if you look back and Google some of your names and generations and find out your people today, as I just found this out, it's quite interesting. Your My people today are doing exactly what my people were doing um, uh, a thousand years ago. <laughs> Guess what they're doing under the demonic council? They're fighting. They're fighting rivalry, uh, bre- breaking things. You know, my people are called to be artists, writers, composers, uh, farmers. And, you know, they came from a tribe of, of vandals. Vandals. You know what vandals do, right? They vandalize things. So the devil was going to make us into vandals, and God is going to make us into, um, uh, you know, artists, composers, writers, musicians, farmers. And it's very interesting that the um, the giftings that God has placed there is exactly what Satan is going to attack in your life. So we see the same thing starting out with Cain. He now lost his ability to grow things, um, and Satan came with the agreement with the argument that he had a right to put a curse between. Um, Cain and the ground, because it had had to, it was it was forced to, obligated to swallow up Abel's blood, so the ground would not sustain his life because of the life he had taken in the shedding of Abel's blood. So that was Satan's a life for a life. The ground, the life of coming from the ground would now be not available. It would not sustain Cain's life because he had taken a life. So it was a life for a life. In our own bless, in our own families. Wherever you're the most gifted will become the great, the greatest place of challenge and attack by the enemy. If it's to be called into unity and oneness, which, of course, that brings strength to any family, the, the crises to divide and set in opposition and embitter and disempower and blame and, greed and the greed and cheating and suspicions and paranoia, all those things will come into your family if, you know, Unity is the thing that brings strength and, and love and forgiveness. And, of course, Satan's going to attack that through any way he can. And you think about it. Just stop for a second and think about your relatives and what's going on. And just put a couple general thoughts together about how this is looking in your family. And then ask the Lord what you were really called to do. So, um, so obviously, when David sinned, when Cain sinned, when we sin, a lot of questions are raised in our minds. Sin raises a lot of questions that in our minds that get transferred into our life because your mind, which is your basically your soul, your mind, your will and emotions, becomes the the place of argument, the place of reasoning, the place of debate, the place where Satan presents his argument. And with David, we see that it, it um, his sin was ever before him, and that it was you know messing with his mind, messing with his ability to be the king, messing with his confidence in going out to battle, messing with his his sense of um, relationship with God. So in Cain's life, we see there were questions were now being raised because Cain did not really resolve that he was totally forgiven by God. He was sent out. God put the mark on him. God said, you're okay. Just 
go, um, and and you won't die. But Cain never was sure again about the goodness of God or God's acceptance of him. It would seem maybe they maybe it it came back to him at some point. But the goodness of God is a lost concept now in your life after you sin. We don't think about the goodness of God or the mercy of God or the forgiveness of God. All we think about is the sin. We we feel estranged, separated from God. That's what sin actually does. It separates us and that kills us. And so people who are feeling abandoned by God, God's mad at them, they did something wrong, that um, God's acceptance of them is in question. So he had questions about his righteousness, about his sin and how to obtain forgiveness. Um, and, you know, we're we're there all the time. Is it really, was it really done at the cross? Or do we have to do a whole bunch more stuff, a whole bunch more works, a whole bunch more law keeping, a whole bunch more rituals, a whole bunch more commandments in order to make God happy or make this work of Calvary stick or prove that we like it or we want it or we're we're, we're faithful or whatever. Um, so, and the other question is, where is he going to, or how is he going to survive? What's he going to do to live now? And a lot of us are so bogged down with sin so distracted that we aren't living. We're surviving, we're coping, we're we're getting by, but we're and we're on me- medications and pain relievers and uh, escapes and you know, street drugs and parties and movies and you know, getting off on wild goose chases all over the place when we when we're losing the basic simple commands of God to love him, love one another. So, the primary lies That got started in Cain's heart and mind. And these are so true for the rest of us. Um, Questions. Am I good enough? Should we be worthy of God's love? You know, the devil's going to say, no, you're not. Oh, the devil knows you've been forgiven by God. He knows it's all taken care of in heaven. He knows that the record is clean. He knows that, that, you know, God is forgiven. He knows all of that. But that doesn't stop him from lying to you about it. And if you listen to him, you know, whose report are you going to believe? Whose report, bottom line, this is the bottom line, simple question, who do you believe, God or the devil? And, of course, the devil comes to us looking like us, sounding like our our minds, our thoughts, our reasoning. And so he's persuaded us to believe the lie because he comes through our own uh, mind, will, and emotions, impersonating himself to us. Does that make sense to you? Well, if it does, that's good. Let's go on then. Stop trying to, trying to do anything. Stop trying to figure this thing out because it's not a matter of trying to figure it out. It's a matter of knowing. And you see, God did not abandon us to just our, our soul software that has been super corrupted by the devil through how many generations of lies and patterns of demonic destruction and accusations and condemnations and open doors. God, in your salvation, not only gave you salvation, freedom, your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He sent the Holy Spirit with a whole new set of software that is downloaded into your spirit, and you can use that. You better use that. If you don't use that, you're still going to be cut in that, caught in that rut of um, back and forth between the flesh and the spirit, and you're never going to make any progress. And it's time to make progress, people. We've got to raise up, stand up, know, K-N-O-W, that God has called us to these last days for such a time as this. But anyway... So, uh, if uh, am I worthy of God's love? Uh, a second question that came to and to us. Uh, God expects me to be good to keep the law. Uh, no, actually, He doesn't. Actually, absolutely, He doesn't. 
expect you to be good or keep the law. And if you think God expects you to be good and keep the law, then you're believing a heresy. Because God said, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody broke the law. Jesus said, there's none good but God. So when the rich young ruler came and tried to get an A on his report card and a big pat on the back from Jesus, Jesus said, go sell all that you have and follow me. In other words, you've still got a few things on that list that you haven't been able to do. And that one was fear. You know, I've got to trust in my own self, my own stuff, um, or maybe covetousness, uh, because that would give him control. So it's not about being good. We can't be good. And there's none good but one, and that's God. Okay, so then why would God expect us to do something he has already told us we cannot do? That would be totally crazy and unfair, wouldn't you think? So God doesn't expect us to keep the law. God satisfied the law when he died on the cross. The law demanded something that we couldn't give it. Um, and all, you know, the, the enemy was still taking opportunity after the cross. He is to this very day to conceal the payment Jesus gave uh, in our behalf. And, um, he, and, and he wants to still, the devil still wants to demand payment of us, from us um, through guilt and condemnation. The blood of Jesus satisfies the law. The law is happy. The law is satisfied, but it does not satisfy Satan, who still thinks he can change, ch- charge us again with debt obligations. So the law was satisfied by the work and the, the, the death of Jesus Christ, but Satan is not. So, the other thought or lie Satan brought into Cain's mind is, or David's, or yours, I must be perfect to please God. So we have the demon of perfection, who's trying to provoke you to try harder to be good, to get it right. Some of you are just wasting way too much time trying to be perfect. Give it up. That That is a total waste of your time, your energy, and you're getting all anxious and freaked out, because guess what? You can't be perfect. And if you are perfect today, it won't be enough for tomorrow because the spirit, the demon of perfection is always raising the bar. You know this. So get off the treadmill. You aren't called by God or created by God to serve the spirit of perfection. We don't get to heaven by being perfect. There's a lot of messy, messy people who got to heaven, like, say, the guy who was next to Jesus dying on the other cross. I'm sure he didn't quite have his perfect act together. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I don't think that was just you know, said so that he would get to heaven. I think that was meant for us as well to hear. We were overhearing a a personal conversation there that God wanted us to hear to know that we are, um, it's not about being perfect. Um, God's love requires me to be good to get to heaven. We've already kind of talked about that. No, it's not about being good. It's allowing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be our righteousness. You know, a lot of people struggle with this idea of I've got to be right. I can't admit I'm wrong. I can't admit I made a mistake. I have to be right. You're wrong. It's my way or the highway, you know, uh, because we're built by God to love righteousness. But the devil's twisted that idea of righteousness and the love for righteousness around to I've got to be right. If I'm not right, I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'm not right. And if I'm wrong, then I'm not righteous. That's not that's demonic reasoning. Okay. And that's what a lot of people think. They're afraid to give up their opinion. They're afraid to give up um, lest they have to admit that they're wrong or they didn't get it right. But, you know, none of us get everything, everything right. And that's, you know, we don't get into heaven because we have perfect doctrine. Thank God. Or nobody would be there. We get to heaven because we love Jesus 
and we followed him, and he has a lot of mercy, and his salvation is the ticket to get to heaven, believing that Jesus died for you, believing you couldn't be good enough, believing you couldn't be perfect enough. And now he's, by his great mercy and grace, has allowed you, what an opportunity, what an opportunity to, to demonstrate or respond to the love of God and that great love and mercy by living for him, by just being okay, by being available to him 24-7, all the time, to do whatever he wants you to do. And it's not about you throwing religious, rigorous demands and self-discipline on yourself. Okay, I'm going to fast for 40 days and see if I can make God. It's not about that. It's not about all the stuff they do at Lent. You know, I, yeah, I think everybody should quit eating sugar. I mean, probably that's the best thing Lent does for you if you give up candy for Lent like I did when I was a little girl. It probably was healthy for me, actually. But... It's not about doing penance. It's not about, you know, this rigorous demands uh, that self-righteousness or the Pharisees or the uh, demons or religion would put upon you. It is about being free. It is about being happy and full of God's joy. No matter what, joy, not necessarily happiness because that's based on happenings, but joy, which is an internal strength that you know that no matter what, no matter how horrible, how hot, how heated, how how vile, and violent, the accuser comes against your soul through the people, the words of other people, or your spouse, whatever. You are okay. You've got to know that you're okay because if you're not okay, then you're going to freak and panic. And God's got you. He's got this. He's got it. It's okay. Then, you know, springs from all that the question, what must I do to be accepted by God? Do, 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 do. The devil has pushed the gospel into doing. Jesus has made it about abiding. He's the vine. You're the branch. And as the branch is hooked into the tree, it cannot be anything except what the tree is because the sap, the nourishment, the strength is coming through the trunk. And so the branch is going to be what the tree is. So if you're hooked into Jesus, you're going to be what Jesus is. So, And you don't see the branches just freaking out and struggling and, 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 and trying hard to be something other than the branch. They're abiding. It's okay. It's done. It's finished. Just live. Okay. Um, and then you have the, the frustration of your, if you're trying to do something that your works are never enough. And so I'm sure that Cain was gripped with all of these. I'm alone, obviously, sent away, separated. I'm bad. I'm mad. I'm confused. I'm mad at God. This isn't fair. I feel abandoned. I'm, I'm sad. All of these demonic judgments have come upon a man or a woman or any of us or Cain or David. The temptation is to believe these lies. Now, to be tempted is not the same as to sin. Um, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted probably a lot of times. But he, it says, but he was without sin. So to be tempted, to have these thoughts come into your mind, and to be crazy enough to think that you have to manage the temptations, manage the thoughts Satan's going to bring into your mind when the tempter can get into your mind or your heart to create a feeling. He can get into your body to create a symptom. You know, that you're going to have to watch and protect yourself from all this stuff. You cannot. So who's going to do that? Why don't you just give that job over to the Holy Spirit who's inside of you already anyway? Let him manage, work it out, and show you the truth so that you can walk in the truth and you don't have to walk in the fear of the lies. And some more lies. I'm guilty. It's my fault. Now, I'm guilty. Yeah, you did sin. You took the cookie. Yeah, you uh, pulled the knife. Yeah, you actually, you know, tempted, were tempted to do something. Then you move from temptation to action. 
And the Bible says that the sword of God, the word of God, is like a sword. It's interesting what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. I think it's 4.12 or 12.4. Look it up. It says, I think it's uh, 12.4. Um, the, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of bone and marrow, thought and intention, soul and spirit. Thought and intention. Okay, what does that mean, thought and intention? Well, what I think it means, it pretty pretty straightforward. It says thought, a thought is a thought, and intention is an intention. And it separates between a thought and an intention so that we can know what our intentions are, what our thoughts are. God's word you know, knows when the temptation switched from an in, a temptation to an intention. Does that make sense? So you don't know that. And Satan can 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 confuse you on that little issue, like um, like I did it, it's my fault, uh, I thought the thought, you know. And, of course, then you have Jesus saying, even if you think upon these things, you've committed this adultery already in your heart or there's murder in your heart. If you say, you know, to this one without a cause, you fool, blah, blah, blah. So whatever, so you, you, so you and I don't know where the line is. Again, boundaries are foolish, you know. God knows your heart. That's all I know. That's all I need to know because I know that God is fair and God knows what other pressures were put on me that I don't even know about. So when guilt comes by to make you feel guilty for sinning because he's convinced you that it was your hand that took the cookie, therefore you are guilty, and you're then going to buy, oh, yeah, I did it. Yeah, it's my fault. I, 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 I'm a sinner. I'm a thief. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a this. I'm a that. And as you start to agree with the I am's you're changing the i am the son or daughter of god into i am a thief a liar a pervert i am no good it's my fault i deserve to be punished i don't deserve good things and i am bad and once you give the devil those three basic agreements i'm no good or i'm bad uh it's my fault and i don't deserve good things i deserve to be punished you have given him a lot to work with and therefore what was under the blood and fine and forgiven in god's book has now been rooted up, dug up, and the devil is now using it to bring his demonic debt obligations on you again because you believed a lie and you believe you had it coming and somehow you believe in that law of reciprocity that I need to pay for my sins. It's my fault. I need to pay. I owe. You know, yeah, you had to, you, I, I, Jesus paid the debt. I, I couldn't pay it. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He did it for me because of what? Because I'm so good? No, because he loves you so much. And he wants you to know he loves you and he wants you to love yourself and to get over all this trying to make things fair and making your life all about getting rid of your sin and forgetting all about the Son. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about sin, it's about the Son. He did not come to tell all the people, oh, you're so bad. You are so, so bad. I can't believe how bad you've been. I mean, I'm just scold, scold, scold. I'm, I, I just can't get over, I don't even want to do this for you. You're not even worth it. You know, you just, just, you've been so rude to God. You've been so mean to us. We just don't want to even be here. I don't even know why I'm here. He never said any of that. There was about, there was two, and you know, he healed people who were, who got him in trouble, who didn't want to be healed, who had bad attitudes. He healed people who were afraid. He healed people who didn't, you know, know what else to do. I mean, he just had compassion and mercy. Why? Why didn't he scold us for being so naughty? Who did he scold? He actually scolded the Pharisees, the religious people, who were supposed to be the ones who were holding the standard of righteousness for these people and beating the people up with it. 
had no mercy on the people, just beat them up more and more and more, and and, and were so self-deceived, so such spiritual blindness. It was like, oh my goodness, at least when a normally, in the natural, when a blind person is blind, they know they're blind, and they don't try to pretend like they can see, and they take precautions, and they, you know, get the uh, additional helps that they need to, to get across the street or whatever they need to do. But when you're spiritually blind and you don't know it, oh, he, you know, uh, let's see, what does he say? Jesus says, if the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? That's what he's talking about. If you think what you're following is right and it's not right, and you've been so tricked and deceived by the angel of light, and believe you me, sir, ma'am, there's so much of that going on out there right now these days that it, it would, you'd drop your jaw if you could just see it. And may the Lord open your eyes so you don't be deceived by self-righteousness and spiritual blindness. So then, after we're feeling guilty, bad, and God's mad at me, and I don't know what to do, and I can't you know, make it up, and now I'm a sinner, I'm bad, I'm no good, I'm never going to make it, we give up. We give up. You know, we, we've based our, our relationship with God on doing instead of being. We failed in the doing. Satan's caused great failures, broken hearts, uh, and then, of course, brings all kinds of other people around to accuse you uh, and make you feel even worse. And then at that point, you know, there's there's nothing left to do except just give up, go away, get mad, gossip. That's what happens. That's what's happening in the church nowadays, because we're not practicing the gospel, not practicing, but knowing, believing, following. I guess it would be practicing the gospel of grace and forgiveness. By the way, forgiveness is the big the big commandment now. The big, big, big commandment. Forgive yourself, forgive each other, let go, let God be the judge because there's no way you're going to judge this mess. There's no way you're going to figure out who's telling the truth anymore. It's not even necessarily your job. What's your job? Because everybody's going to lie to their advantage if they can because of fear. So, And, and then when people would admit that they're telling a lie and tell the truth, they get pounced on by all the people who are still lying because nobody wants anybody to tell the truth because then... You know that makes them look bad. So humbling yourself, admitting you're wrong, is a, is a, is also very very difficult to do because the society is so set up. They demand that you own your stuff, take responsibility. But the minute you do that, then they pounce on you from the other way and may you and, and you're bad. You're you're. I knew you were a liar. I knew you were a thief. I knew you were. So how are we ever permitting any but anyone to to actually? Admit to the truth or admit to the lie or admit to the sin. Um, so you need to be very courageous and know the truth and know that it you are forgiven. Forgiving one another, forgiving yourself. And some people have to forgive God. They think they're mad at God. But I would say to you who are mad at God, ask yourself one question. <clears throat> who said that? Is that the Holy Spirit who's telling you? He lives inside of you, right? That you're mad at God? Did the Holy Spirit tell you to be mad at God? I'm sure he didn't. Now, so the one who wants you to be mad at God or thinks you're mad at God or comes into your mind and your mouth and says, I'm mad at God, coming out of your own heart, I'm mad at God, where's he from? Where's that? Where's the origination of that thought? From heaven or from hell? There are only two places. Even Jesus said when they came to, to contest with him, the baptism of John, where was it from? You know, where was it from? And he says, I will answer that question if you answer. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He, they wanted to know what, what authority he had and what would gave him the right to do all these things. And he says, well, I have one question for you. And if you ask, answer this question, I'll tell you where I get my authority from. And he says, the, the baptism of John, where was it from? 
Was it from heaven or was it from men? And they knew, the Pharisees knew, that if they answered one way, they'd get in trouble with one group of people. And if they answered the other way, they'd get in trouble with the other group of people. And so the baptism of John was from heaven. You know, is the thing you're believing, this thing I'm mad at God, is it from heaven? Or is it from man or hell? Man, of course, stirred up by the counsels of hell. We're not as smart as we think we are, people. The devil is way, 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 way more intelligent than we are. The only one who can outsmart him is the Holy Spirit. So the only way you're going to outsmart the devil is to listen to the Holy Spirit and do what he says and believe and and obey. So going back to what the devil does, now he's got you down on the ground and he's beating you up. I'm bad. I'm guilty. I give up. I'm no good. I'm nothing. Nobody loves me. I'm never going to amount to anything. This is part of the Yanta law, of course, for you Scandinavians out there. Um, and for the rest of us, you know, it's all part of the human curses. I should have known better. I don't know. Everything is an I don't know. Because if I know, then I have to take responsibility. So if I stand in that place of I don't know, I forgot, then maybe I'm then I'm safe. Maybe not really. And I'm never going to make it. All of these lies now become uh, programmed into your systems, and so these become the lies that you that you filter everything else through. So if you're filtering every new experience or opportunity through the old system of lies, they're, they're all your new opportunities are going to be tainted um, and colored and influenced. Your perceptions are going to be twisted and perverted by what you see, by what you've known from before, and everything is going to go back around in a circle, and your life is going to be basically it is what it is what it is. Because you already agreed it is what it is and it's never going to change because it is what it is. So now, so Cain, his family, was subject to the curses and the patterns of loss that came from his father's sins. Um, And now David, the same thing, initiated into their own lives. David didn't get it all right either, although he was considered a friend of God, you know, a, a man after God's own heart. He had a lot of family problems, a lot of problems, a lot, a lot, a lot. And so don't look at the people who are behaving or misbehaving around you and try to take a cue as to how good you're doing. You take your cues from God. You go back to your prayer closet and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Show me what I'm doing, what needs to be done. We need to get this back to where it belongs. This simple allegiance, obedience, revelation of love, accepting God's love, forgiving one another, doing what the Bible says. Get out of the garbage, the mixture that you're eating Many of you are eating such a mixture on Sunday mornings that you have no idea. Some of you got a bellyache from it and don't go anymore to the churches because it's just a mixture. It's a confusion. And I, I've been there, done that, seen that. I, I've lived that too. It's not like it's you know just happens once in a while. It is the it is the general order of the day. So if you're getting mixed up, go back to your Bible and just be quiet and say, God, what about this? What about that? And ask the Holy Spirit to show you and tell the devil inside of your mind to shut up. And if the devil speaks up, tell him to go to the pit. Just say, where's that from? Who's talking to me? Who said that? Where are you from? What's your name? Go to the pit. And if, you know, I mean, the Holy Spirit, you're you're not going to feel agitated, upset, anxious when the Holy Spirit talks to you. Even when he corrects you and leads us. And, and you know, the more you walk with him, the less he's going to need to correct you, too. That's a good thing. But he doesn't do it with the spirit of condemnation. He does it with love. And he does it with a hope in mind. Just like a, a loving parent corrects their child with love so that the child doesn't fall for that lie anymore. Because God knows the war. He knows the devil's out there to, to, to steal, to lie, to murder, to kill. And he's doing a very 
Good job. Right now, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And that's another reason why we basically know we're coming into the last days, because it's pretty much under the sway of the evil one, and it's pretty much going to stay there until Jesus comes back. So I wouldn't get too nervous about all that. I mean, there's people you can still reconcile back to God, pull out of the fire, tell them the truth. There's a lot that are kind of saved but confused. A lot of those people, they need to know what they can, that this is the simple love of God, forgiving one another, that they've been lied to. It's okay. And our job probably is to find them, to lead them to Jesus or to help them on the way to sanctification and discipleship. So, um, but what happens is our families become subject to the curse, the patterns of loss. We get used to it. It comes from our fathers and mothers' sins that are now brought down into our lives. Why? Because um, of what the devil calls debt obligations and unfinished business, you know, He's able to collect, Satan is able to keep collecting on the sins of the generations past. The question is, well, why? Well, dumb question, I suppose, because he's evil and because he can. So we even see in Cain's bloodline that five generations later, Lamech um, killed a man uh, for, for wounding him, or he killed a man, actually. I'm not sure the man wounded him or he, you know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. It, I think the Bible says he did. And then he received, um, he had received this generational curse from his father Cain to kill someone. So patterns of activity, judgment, murder, violence, bloodshed, sexual perversion, addiction, uh, gossip, hatred, fathers uh, being hard with their sons because their fathers were hard on them, uh, mothers being jealous of their daughters because their mothers were jealous of them. This is all real. Um, these records of sin and a demonic um, reciprocity uh, are kept on the bloodlines. And it's interesting, they're marked on the bloodlines. And if you want to look at an interesting passage, look in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. And I'm sure Jeremiah did not know anything about genes and DNA. Maybe he did, but I kind of doubt it. He didn't use those words, genetic transfers or um, uh, inheritances. He just said it this way. God's talking to the people of Israel and kind of making, just making some observations. And you can read those. Those are previous to this passage. And then he says, Yet I had planted you a noble vine. I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? Although, so he's asking the question, how'd you do that? What happened? What happened to you? You started out a pure seed, highest quality, you know, um, good, a good seed. Now you've turned into this renegade plant that that worships idols under every green tree. You've been overtaken with sin, adultery, abominations, vile affections. And then he goes on to say, after he makes that observation, even if you wash with lye and use much soap, lye is like a bleach, even if you wash with bleach and much soap, your iniquity is marked before me. Your iniquity is still upon you. You are spotted, dirty, and stained. Okay, so what is God saying in all of that? He's saying that the sin marks are not removed from our DNA by working, washing, good deeds, using soap, trying harder to be better, making promises to change. None of that was able to affect the mark of sin on the DNA. And I believe the devil even laughs at such futile attempts because 
It doesn't remove any blood guilt from the sin of sin from our lives. It's not removed through promises or good works. It is removed through forgiveness. It is removed through you forgiving yourself. And God knows the only way that he can remove this mark is, it's just like on a a, 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 a disc, a CD-ROM or a DVD disc. There's information written on there. And the only way that information can be removed, really, is to rewrite something else over it. The, the God knows the only way that he could remove the marks of sin and its effects, its cancerous, infectious effects on us and our next generation, is to erase it through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is like new information that rewrites, writes over the old information to bring us to the place of truth. So we know the rule is blood for blood. And we know the remedy is the blood of God. That was the only remedy. That's the only thing that would work. Now, it's interesting when we talk about marks, <clears throat> marking iniquity, marking iniquity on our DNA. You know, I don't think this is a new concept at all. I think, but now we have new language to describe it. Um, but in Psalm 130, verse 1 through 4, the, the psalmist says, uh, he's making a plea for uh, declaring that there is forgiveness with God. And he says this, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should do that, mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand before you? Who could ever, if you held grievances, if you kept a record, if you marked these iniquities, if you failed to forgive, if you held to your ground and held us responsible for what has done and been done to us, Lord, who in the world would ever make it? Who could stand? It's a very fair question, but, you know, we read that. I read that for many years, and I thought, oh, God is marking iniquities. God's marking it all down. That is absolutely the wrong, that's absolutely incorrect. God is not marking the iniquities. The iniquities are not marked by him. Because what does this imply? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who would stand? Who could stand? It implies, number one, that if God marked iniquities, we couldn't stand. But it also implies that if God wants us to stand and not fall and fail, then God is not marking iniquities. God, if God wants to hold our sins against us, there would be no one else, no place else to go for mercy. We'd be done. We'd be the devils. So God is a God of ever-present mercy and help in the time of trouble because he knows the devil is more than willing to come and take us off God's hands. The second God would let us go or, or mark iniquities, or not forgive us, the devil would gather us up and throw us in hell with great, great delight. There is, he says, but he ends that psalm by saying, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So God is not, he doesn't want us to serve him out of fear. He wants to serve him out of love, but that we may reverence him because there is forgiveness with God. Why would the psalmist say there's forgiveness with God if there isn't any mercy with God? Mercy and forgiveness are basically hand in hand here. So it is the devil who marks the iniquities, and he's the one who marks them on our, keeps track of the sin. Who else would be interested in keeping track of your sin except the evil one? And where does he keep track of it? Well, on your generational bloodline, but also in your mind. I believe he holds there, there's a demon keeper of the records of wrongs who brings up the wrongs, the wrongs others have done to you, the wrongs you've done to them. 
Who else would be interested in keeping track of sin but the evil one? Who else would be interested in keeping us bitter and angry and unforgiving towards one another except the one who keeps record of the wrongs? Where is the best record? Where is this uh, the best place to keep this record of sin? Well, where else could the devil mark a sin that would come down into the next generation if he's marking it in my mind only? Or in my heart only when I die, it dies with me. But if if what I what transmits from me from my body to the next generation, which is basically DNA, you know the genes and chromosomes, that's where the iniquity is also marked. It's marked there so that it can be passed down from one generation to the next. So the devil can keep track of the sins, keep track of the record of them, and where else but on the DNA. Now we know there are things um, codes on the DNA. There's lots of the instructions on the DNA to give us, uh, to give us, to determine us, you know, information, uh, how tall, what colors your hair, what sex, what this, what that, and and the, and the nationalities, whatever has been pulled together of the various nationalities that pertain to your particular personality and making and individuality, all of these things are on the DNA, and also, you know, obviously we're born, and all this genetic information is now subject to uh, the epigenetic situations where we're... The epigenetic means basically their little attachments to the DNA that determine which um, information will be uh, opened and which will not, which will, you know... And that's based on learning. That's based on the snake pit. That's based on experiences. That's based on the words of other people. That's based on the things you eat. That's based on your environment, your nurturing, your... uh, all of this, your education, all of those things then then also factor into the marks of iniquity on the DNA. And of course, because the snake is very corrupted and you already have lots of sins floating around in the sins of the people who are your parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, da-da-da, all of these things are almost a dead uh, shoe-in that the devil's going to get to do something here, big time. He's going to get to mark you, identify you, and try to write down your identity, your define you, I guess is the word I'm looking for, your identity to, to define you. So who else is interested in keeping track of the sins but the evil one? Where does he record them? On the DNA. And so how are you going to manage your DNA? How are you going to change your DNA? Hmm. Well, okay, so if, I, if, if I'm kind of predisposed to sin, like to drink or use chemicals, then I guess it's, it's not my fault and I could just go ahead and do it. No, that's not. That's not what's what's really going on here. That's what the devil would want you on one side of the torture rack and the the, the lies to say, well, you know, I can't help myself. Um, I'm predisposed to this. Um, it's my lot in life, you know. Uh, well, that's the devil's lot in your life if you want to take it. But God has a better way. God has eternal life, freedom, peace, joy, deliverance, healing, help, encouragement, nurturing, truth. How about that? Truth. For everybody, whosoever will. So the whole deal down here is the devil lying to you and trying to hold you in a position he's got you in and God redeeming you, getting you bought back by your agreement, by following, Jesus said, follow me, following him. Does that make sense? So these past agreements, these predispositions, these areas of weakness, specific vulnerabilities, and by the way, the human body is very vulnerable. We are super weak. We have so many needs and we're so vulnerable to so many situations. We need food. We need water. We need air. We need right air pressures, right air temperatures. We need love, meaning, purpose. 
We need so many things that in any one of these things, Satan can just make a nuisance of himself and create create a, a vacuum, a, deprive us, and then bring in a solution to the deprivation situation. And then if we take his solution, we have come into agreement with his lie, and we now are his servants, his slaves. Um, so th- these past agreements that must be dealt with. You say, well, it's all under the blood. Well, yeah, it is. Technically, all this stuff is under the blood in God's from God's point of view, but not from yours necessarily. And that's where we need to come to understand the power of the cross, the power of the blood, the power of the finished work. When Jesus said it is finished, paid in full, he paid the debt obligation. And so we do not, God knows we have needs. He knows we need water and food and God is with us for us and there to take care of us. But fear often pushes the panic button and says, oh, I don't know what God's going to do. i got to take care of myself. Where is God? I don't even know God. Is there a God? Not sure there's even a God anymore. People, seriously, if there's no God and this is all we get and this is what we got and this is what's going on, yeah, let's just bail out of here, right? Because it's stupid. It's beyond stupid. But there is a God who gave us a book told us of his love, laid down his life, and made us a super nice promise. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and, and bring you to myself. Many mansions where I'm going. Now, I, you say, well, I've never seen a mansion. I don't know what that's like. I've always lived in this hovel, never had enough money, always hand to mouth here. You know, nothing ever going good in my life. Depressed, kicked around, thoughtless. Come on. If you've got Jesus Christ and salvation, you are the richest and most well-positioned person on earth. Give it up. This poor me got nothing. Don't buy that. That's another poor me, molly-grubbing, garbage lie of the devil. You have got awesome, awesome, an awesome future. So take advantage of your opportunities now to occupy till your king gets back. Because when the king gets back, and he will, I promise you, he will come back. And many say it's going to be probably within your lifetime if you live another 20 years. And I say, I agree. He's going to come back and he's going to check it out and see what you were doing. Were you occupying till he came or were you giving up, whining, crying, going along with the lies, or were you standing up for the truth? Stand up for the truth. Get in your Bibles. Read the Gospels. Read the Epistles. And don't listen to people who lie to you. And you say, well, I don't know if they're lying to me or not because it sounds so good. It fits, it fits what I think. Don't go with what you think. Don't go with what you feel. Go with what God says and what you already know because you're built to know the truth. You are built to know the truth. That means your divine nature image is there. You are built to recognize the truth, to resonate with it, to reflect on it, to realize the truth. You're built to come to the truth because if God wouldn't have put the truth in us to begin with, there would be no reason or way that he could respond, require us to come back to it. We would have no idea. It's a hit and miss deal. It's a crapshoot or whatever, a trap shoot. Cra- I don't know. It's not going to work unless God has already put the truth within us, which he did. And when you get saved, the Holy Spirit lights that up. That that part of your, that soul operating uh, system is now declared uh, virus and the spirit software system is now put in place. And that's why he says in, in uh, Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You now have an option. And so we can make choices. Now, so this is all good news. This is, But remember, everything is marked on the DNA. The DNA carries the information codes for everything, for health, wealth, loss of inheritance, relationships, personality traits, aptitudes, giftings. It even carries the marks for trauma and calamities and accidents and all the previous agreements 
that our ancestors gave the devil. These become the permission slips that Satan uses, obtained from them, to reenact, to reproduce, to create again the pattern uh, in our in our life, to steal from us the anointing, the the call of God on our life. If my call on my life, according to my name, is to make things right, then you better know that the devil's going to do everything in my bloodline he can to bring injustices, bitternesses, unforgiveness, hatred, contempt, separations, war, big time. These co- the, you know, and these codes, the devil's um, good news. The devil can't automatically bring these codes and permission slips automatically activate them in us. They can only be activated if we come into agreement with them. They're activated by our agreement. But here's the last piece of news I'm going to give you for the day. Activation is comes through agreements, and those agreements are very subtle. You know, Satan sets up the opportune time where he can create the crisis, bring in the trauma, and then bring in the solution. We take the solution. Um, so we can consciously come into an agreement with him. We can, you know, with our mind decide to take the joint, take the drink, take the drug, take the substance, you know, drive too fast, you know, tell the lie, whatever. We can consciously doing that. But before you were ever aware of conscious decisions, you were making a lot of unconscious, subconscious decisions with spirits of fear, death, the patterns of trauma that came through our births, um, the patterns of agreements we made as children before we, you know, when it was all our fault and we didn't understand anything. Uh, those subconscious agreements are still powerful agreements with destruction and they work and that's all the devil needs you are afraid you're born afraid you're born things didn't go well in getting here you got stuck in the birth canal whatever you are traumatized and now you're going to be stuck just your life is stuck or maybe you got cesarean you were a cesarean baby and now you can't accomplish the first simple task of just getting here uh, so your life is all about somebody else has got to help you you got to get something uh, somebody else got to take care of you not to say cesareans are bad. I'm just saying that's the way the devil started to set you up and program you. Um, maybe you were born in a pool of blood and your mother's dying to death. Well, you're going to be born pretty pretty afraid, pretty controlling, pretty anxious, pretty terrified. Maybe you're going to be a mama's baby at that point. Who knows? Um, whatever the devil can get you to go with, he will. Because those are the subconscious agreements. And then you have the passive agreements, the kind that we make a lot of times when we just don't want to get involved. I, it's not up to me. It's not my business. We, we're like the, 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 they pass by the, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, but the two guys, the priest and the Levite, just pass by. No, it's none of my business. This guy's dying on the road. Don't want to get involved. You know, we make it an agreement to not get involved. We just let it go we, we, with abortions. Oh, well, it's just, you know, it is what it is. And we just kind of walk by it. And we don't, we don't cancel the agreements, uh, the passive agreements. And then the final way that this sometimes happens is through a vow. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to do it that way. I'm never going to let a man touch me. I'm never going to blah, blah, blah. And or the implied consents, like um, that implied that I got to get closer to God implies I'm not in close to God. Um, the feeling of God's mad at me implies that, you know, I think he's mad at me. I feel, you know, we just go along with the feelings and we give our consent through just passive agreement or through um, agreeing with an implication. And so these are the ways the devil gets to activate the the demonic codes, the patterns of demonic destruction in our life. This is these agreements. And these are the very things that the Word of God wants to bring to correction because um, 
the Word of God reprograms, transforms our mind. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this week, take the time. We don't know how many weeks or days or moments of freedom we still have. Use your Bible, read it, memorize it, uh, meditate on it, and allow the Lord God to operate in your life to answer what's set before you with truth and righteousness, truth to bring freedom to your people, yourself, truth. So, so, Lord God, you said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and let us walk in that freedom. I thank you for the many things I said today, Lord God. I pray that the devil will not be able to snatch them out of their lives or minds, or that the spirit of confusion won't get to stir the pot, that people will get it and see it, Lord. And I thank you for your mercy. I also want to remind everybody that this coming Saturday, which is the 27th of February, we are having a workshop, another workshop called Buried Alive. Uh, at the um, Holiday Inn in Elk River. It's the Atsego Elk River Holiday Inn. You can go to the website, liferecovery.com, and get the directions. There is no charge. It is free. We uh, have a bigger space so that you can come. We would like you to please register, though. Go there. There's a little easy click button. Just register so we know you're coming. That would be helpful. I know we're getting into the busy, busy seasons already, but Don't make excuses. Buried alive. We're going to be talking about being buried alive and how to, uh, not how to, actually to know uh, the truth that sets us free and see what Jesus has already done for us. So buried alive, that's uh, Saturday, starts at 10 o'clock, goes till 3. It's free. And they do have um, food available on site there. So uh, if you bring a bag lunch, then eat it in the car because their little policies don't like us to do that. Anyway, parking is free, and so come and be blessed. Uh, God bless you, and have an awesome, awesome week. We'll see you on Saturday. Bye-bye. I have an emergency. What is your location? for your soul.